everybody's looking for the key to success to help them grow, to become more successful. You're not going to find it in a sales book. You're not going to find it in a marketing book, a book on competitive advantage, a book on strategy, a book on innovation. No, it's going to be an understanding how to build mental toughness, resiliency. That's what you need. That it's a set up, not a setback. Because I refuse to allow a negative circumstance to dictate my life. You think it's actually going to work out that way. (laughs) Here's the thing that you don't understand. Is that it's never going to beat me down. It's never going to defeat me. I'm never going to allow this to beat me. Because life doesn't happen to me. It happens for me. There are demons all around us. Demons in the form of fear. Anxiety, guilt, depression, sadness, bullying, learned helplessness, negativity. And if we allow these demons to control us, we will only continue to lose the battle on mental health. It's time for us to cut the crap from our lives and go on offense against these demons by building mental toughness and resiliency. That's why you're here. My name is Ryan Caligiuri, and welcome to the Cut the Crap Show. What is going on, everybody? Just having a glass of water here. <laughs> I hope you're all having a great start to your week. Ryan Caligiuri here. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of the Cut the Crap Show. It means so much to me that you join me week after week. It truly does. And every week, you know what I'm doing here. I'm reading a book, condensing that book down to its core golden nuggets, bringing the author on the show to have a conversation about the golden nuggets. And I'm here every single week just trying to save you a little bit of time, bring you some information that can spark real change in your life, and help you build mental toughness and resilience. That's what we're trying to do here every single week. I just got to say thank you to every single one of you who reached out to me last week telling me just how much you love the new direction that the show is going in. It's really important to me that I keep pushing in this direction. It's just something I'm more passionate about. Something I find myself talking more and more about with peers, with friends, with colleagues, with clients. And it's just something I'm more passionate about these days. So I want to bring this passion to you and hope that this can drive a change in your life. For the better, for the positive. And if you love what I'm putting down here, then please do me a favor. If you're listening to this on your iPhone, on your iPad, whatever, on your whatever Apple device, doesn't matter what you're listening on, do me a favor, take 30 seconds out of your day and go on iTunes, go on the Apple Podcast app, whatever you're listening on right now, and just give this show a five-star rating. That means so much to me. It means so much for the ranking and the, the, the growth of the show. So if you could do that for me, Really, really appreciate that. So thank you so much in advance for all you who do that. And one more thing, don't forget to connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can follow me, see what's going on throughout the day. You can ask me questions. And uh, it's really important that you do that. Really important you do that. You might be saying, well, why, Ryan? Why is it important you do that? Well, because, I mean, if you talk to me, I can go ahead and bring your book on here. So I was talking to a guy this week on Twitter. His name is Joseph Cass. Thank you so much, Joseph, by the way, for reaching out to me and for giving me your book recommendation. So he threw down a book. He said, Ryan, I think you got to read this one. I think it fits with the mode that you're going in, talking about mental toughness, resilience. I think you got to get this. And the fact that I talked about this gentleman before on the show, I referenced him on the seven resilient things people do differently with a cash career. And I mentioned this guy's name. So it was a familiar name to me. I picked up the book, read it, and I got to cover it today. And of course, the author, unfortunately, he's not here anymore today. He died at uh, the age of 92, I think back in 1997. So 
So I hope I do this book justice by doing it myself. And for me, it's just about getting the content out there. It's such a great story, and I know it's going to resonate especially well with all of you who are really digging this new format. So in any case, what book are we covering, and who's this guy that I'm talking about? The book is called The Man's Search for Meaning. Before I get into it, I just want to say that, again, this book, it was published you know, in the 40s, and the name itself, A Man's Search for Meaning. I don't want you to get hung up on that title, A Man. It was very acceptable back in the 40s, and today we've grown because of it. We've become more progressive, right? So man or woman, man or woman search for meaning. If I was to rewrite that book, that's how I would put that down because it's anybody who's listening to this today. But the book itself, it's called Man's Search for Meaning. It was first published in German in 1946, just one year after the end of the Second World War and the liberation of its author, psychologist Viktor Frankl from a Nazi concentration camp. Now, this book in particular is designed to help each individual find his or her own meaning in life. And his book is a combination of a memoir and his teachings. And it was first translated in 1959. And it's become one of the most influential books of the 20th century. Now, this book is broken down into two long essays and a short postscript. And that short postscript was added in quite later on, actually, 1984. So the first essay, it's called Experiences in a Concentration Camp, and it details his experiences and observations while imprisoned in several different concentration camps. And it pays very particular close attention to how finding meaning in even the most dire of circumstances allowed him and so many others to survive. It's incredible. The second essay, Logotherapy in a Nutshell, or sorry, Logotherapy in a Nutshell, and it describes the basic principles of his meaning-centered therapeutic practice. And the last piece, the postscript, the case for a tragic optimism, that explores the idea of saying yes to life in spite of everything that's going on around you. As you can already tell, this book fits in very nicely with the new direction of the show. Obviously, hearing a story, a firsthand account, a memoir of somebody who's a Holocaust survivor, that's powerful in itself. But the fact that he was a neuroscientist and a psychologist and he came out of it with brand new thinking, philosophy that he shares with all of us to help us understand how to get through life. This man has so much to teach and we have so much to learn from this book. I just a heads up for you before we kick into this one. This episode is going to be a little bit different because I've never really covered a memoir before or an autobiography or anything like that on the show. So there's different ways of separating this book. And so I'm separating this book into the sections of the book. The three sections that I talked about at the very top, that's how I'm going to break this down. So instead of me breaking it down to a handful of golden nuggets, I kind of summarized each of the sections. And so I wrote it down on a Word document. And for me, I believe the best way for me to share this information is just to read it to you. It took me a hell of a lot of time to write this one out piece by piece, section by section. So I really hope that you appreciate all the work that I put into this one to condense it down section by section. So without further ado, let's crack right into this one. This is Man's Search for Meaning by psychologist and Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl. Part one, experiences in a concentration camp. Experiences in a concentration camp is structured around Frankel's observations of three distinct phases of the average prisoner's psychological response to life in the concentration camps, each with its particular symptoms. The phase immediately following arrival at the camp, 
the phase when prisoners are entrenched in camp life, and the phase following their liberation. The first phase is characterized by the symptom of shock. Frankel recounts his arrival by train at the infamous Auschwitz, when he and his fellow prisoners' initial shock and horror quickly gave way to the condition known as the delusion of reprieve, the conviction that they would be saved at the last moment, that things could not be as terrible as they seemed. Frankel describes how, not for the last time, he waited for fate to take its course as the prisoners took their turn standing in front of an SS officer who casually pointed them to the right, which meant they looked physically fit enough for manual labor. Or the left, which meant they would be sent to the gas chambers. For Frankel, the culmination of this first phase came when the prisoners were taken to the showers and all their clothes and possessions were taken from them. Desperate to keep the manuscript of his first book, which he had in his coat pocket, he tried to enlist the help of an older prisoner. The prisoner grinned at Frankel, then cursed at him. At this moment, Frankel says he realized he would have to strike out his whole former life. After this incident, shaved and stripped of everything but their naked existence, the prisoners were overtaken by a grim sense of humor, a cold curiosity about their situation, and an ongoing surprise at how much they were able to endure. Still, many considered committing suicide by running into electrified barbed wire that surrounded the camp. His first night there, Frankel promised himself he would not do the same thing. A colleague who had been imprisoned weeks before advised him and his fellow new arrivals to shave daily, stand up straight, and avoid looking weak in any way. Men who looked worn out or sick, men who looked like they could no longer work, they were insulted and were inevitably sent to the gas chambers. After a few days, inmates entered the second phase, which was characterized by apathy, detachment, and what Frankel terms an emotional death. Faced with so much daily suffering, prisoners' initial feelings of disgust, horror, and pity were deadened. This apathy was a necessary defense mechanism as all prisoners' emotions were concentrated on ensuring his or her own survival and their survival of those closest to them. Now in the book, Frankel illustrates this deadening of emotions of everyone in the concentration camps by recalling a story of how he calmly watched the body of a man who had just died of a disease called typhus be dragged from his hut into the snow and people just mauled his body, took his clothes, took his possessions, whatever he had, they just mauled him like animals. And he said he wouldn't have even remembered this story, this incident at all, if he weren't fascinated by the psychological aspects of it. And again, as somebody who's interested in the brain and psychology, it was the only reason he remembered this. Otherwise, he would have just forgotten it because he was so dead to everything that was happening around him. Prisoners suffered frequent beatings from guards and foremen, and edema and typhus was starting to set in as people were working in ice and snow and worn-out shoes. They were also all severely undernourished, receiving only small portions of bread and watery soup every single day. Many even starved to death. Frankel writes that inmates largely regressed to a more primitive level due to the conditions of camp life, and the need for food was the primitive drive on which their desires centered. There was no room for the desire for anything, 
not directly related to survival. In Frankel's view, however, the desire for meaning was more directly related to a prisoner's survival than anything. He quotes German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, a man who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. Having something to live for, Frankel says, was the only reason anyone survived in such conditions. For him, it was the thought of seeing his wife again, returning to his work and reconstructing his lost manuscript, which he had began to write on tiny scraps of paper in an attempt to stave off delirium when ill with typhus. Frankel explains that people who are able to find meaning in their rich inner lives had a better chance not only of surviving the camps, but of lessening the damage to their inner selves. He illustrates with a moving passage on the loving thoughts about his wife that sustained him while he dug ditches in the dead of winter. As he worked, Frankel carried on a conversation with his wife in his mind, not knowing if she was alive or dead, but feeling that he was in a real communion with her either way. During this very spiritual experience, Frankel concluded that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which man can aspire, and that the salvation of man is through love and in love. Even in the most desolate situation, when there is no possibility of taking significant action to change one's circumstances, meaning can be found in love. This conviction would become part of Frankel's logotherapeutic theory. Thinking of loved ones, recalling the past, exercising a sense of dark humor and experiencing brief glimpses of the beauty and art and nature were all methods of survival in the camps. Prisoners created an improvised cabaret from time to time that was so effective in helping them temporarily forget their suffering that many men and women missed receiving their ration of food to attend. The meager pleasures of camp life, Frankel says, provided a kind of negative happiness, freedom from suffering. Frankel describes the happiness of being transported to a camp without a chimney or a crematorium, a positive thing. The small mercy of being able to remove lice and other bugs before bed, a positive thing. Going back to camp before dying of exhaustion in the cold, a positive thing and the good luck of being able to work indoors in a factory or rest in the sick hut. Again, a positive thing amongst all the suffering. Real pleasures were very few, but when real pleasures are very few, you have to look deep to find something to find pleasure in. Frankel's main concern was how the dehumanizing effects of the camps threatened to cause prisoners to lose their values and inner freedom. If they didn't struggle to maintain their self-respect and individuality, if they didn't have a meaning to live for, they could descend to an animal level. And in many cases, he saw this. In the camps, the feeling of being totally at the mercy of fate was inescapable. Frankel illustrates this, along with the lack of value placed on human lives, through a description of the sick convoys. When ill patients were rounded up and taken away in trucks, one literally became a number. One of Frankel's rules for himself was that he would answer all questions truthfully, but not say more than what was asked. Another was that he let fate take its course 
as when he didn't take his name off of the list of men to be sent to a rest camp. Many suspected it was actually just the gas chambers. This turned out to be the right decision as Frankel really was transferred to a rest camp and later learned that famine and cannibalism had broken out at the previous camp just after he had left. Since fate seemed to be in control, however, making decisions could be torturous. Near the end of the war, Frankel planned to escape with a friend but decided to stay and comfort the patients he was treating instead. Later, he again tried to escape with a friend, but the Red Cross arrived first. Frankel and his friend had to stay behind while others left the camp on trucks, supposedly bound for freedom. They were instead burned in the huts of a nearby camp while Frankel and his friend were liberated. The apathy and irritability prisoners experienced resulted from a lack of sleep, partially because of the rats that infested the huts, hunger, and a lack of nicotine and caffeine, as well as from the inferiority complexes most prisoners suffered. This worsened when the degraded majority and promoted minority, those were people who are called capos and other prisoners that were given prominent positions in the camp, when the degraded majority and promoted minority clashed or when irritability was faced with others' apathy along with impending danger, things just got even worse. But still, Frankel suggests that people are more than just the result of their environment or their conditions. He emphasizes that everyone can choose, under any circumstances, what will become of him or her, mentally and spiritually. He argues that what kind of person you are is a result of an inner decision, rather than your own situation, and that bearing your suffering with dignity is a real achievement. It is this spiritual freedom which can't be taken away that makes life meaningful and personal. Frankel regards suffering as an opportunity to make meaning out of life. Even if the normal routes to meaning, a creative life, or a life of enjoyment are closed, people can still find deep meaning in their lives through the way they handle their suffering with bravery, with dignity, with selflessness, with morality, rather than by becoming no more than an animal. Suffering and dying are, much as we might wish it otherwise, part of a complete life. The most depressing influence of the camps was the total uncertainty as to how long someone would be there, living in a provisional existence of unknown limit. Many prisoners felt unable to live for the future or have a goal because they had no idea when or if they would be released. For prisoners who chose to live totally in the past, shutting out the reality of their lives in the camp and overlooking opportunities to make something positive of their experiences, life became pointless and meaningless. Frankel states that prisoners and all people must have a future goal to look forward to. It is an oddity of the human race that we can only live by looking to the future. He himself combated the disgust at the trivial things he was forced to think of in the camp, matters of survival and horrible conditions. He imagined himself lecturing on the psychology of the camps in the future. The prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his or her own future, was doomed. These men and women lost their spiritual hold and gave up on living, refusing to move, sometimes smoking a last cigarette, then falling ill and dying. This often happened when hopes of being released at certain times were extinguished. 
I want to take a quick pause here for a second because I just remembered two things I didn't write in here. The first one was when he would tell us stories about people who were smoking. And he said that those people gave up because they were trying to find the simplest pleasures. And while there was nothing wrong with that, by smoking, they would give up their opportunity to trade those cigarettes, that nicotine, for something that meant even more to them. Trading it for food a blanket, a piece of wire to keep their shoes together from getting swelling of the feet. And so when people decided that, you know what, my time here is coming to an end, they wanted to just smoke. And so I found that a very powerful piece of imagery in the book. The second story was his friend who believed that the Allied forces in World War II were going to come to their rescue by a certain date. He picked a date in his mind that he thought that the Allied forces were going to come and rescue them. And when that day came and the Allied forces weren't there, the next day his friend fell ill with a fever and died. And Frankel suggests that he believed the man died because he gave up hope. He gave up hope for life. He didn't have anything to believe in anymore. He believed for so long in that date. That's what kept him going. But the moment that date didn't show up and he gave up all hope, the man's health declined and he died. It's so incredibly powerful and something we all need to keep in mind, the importance of goals, the importance of keeping your eye on the prize, as simple as that sounds in this tragic story. That's a huge message that comes away in this point here. Anyways, let's get back to it. To establish his guiding motto for psychotherapeutic work with prisoners, Frankel again quoted Friedrich Nietzsche, who again was a German philosopher, He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. People must have a purpose to fulfill. There is no general, overarching meaning inherent in life. Every person must find their own meaning, and that meaning could change from moment to moment depending on the unique situation a person finds him or herself in, including situations in which suffering is unavoidable. Frankel sees life as the concrete reality we find ourselves in. Therefore, we must find meaning here in our lives, in our specific real circumstances, in our attitudes towards reality. Rather than questioning the meaning of life, people must realize that they are the ones for whom life is asking something and that they can only answer by being responsible for their own irreplaceable lives. In the book, Frankel recounts a time when he was called on to give advice to his fellow prisoners as they lay fasting in their huts. He helped them find meaning in their lives by talking about the future and the reasons to hope in spite of the fact that their chances of survival were about 1 in 20. He discussed the past and how all they had experienced could never be taken from them. He told them that meaning could be found even in hopeless situations because life has an infinite meaning that never ceases to be finished. He said that everything that they're experiencing will contribute to something that will help them in the future. He also said that they should suffer with dignity and that their sacrifice on a spiritual level would not be for nothing. Frankel's words succeeded in inspiring hope in his listeners. 
Lastly, Frankel discusses the psychology of the period following a prisoner's release and liberation. In this section, he first discusses the psychology of the guards. There were some sadists, but mostly there were guards who were hardened by their experiences and did not carry out, but didn't prevent sadistic actions by the minority. There were also some who took pity on the prisoners, such as a foreman who gave Frankel a piece of bread, moving him with his humanity as he did so. Frankel draws the conclusion from his experiences of human behavior in the camps that there are two races of men and women in this world, but only these two, the race of the decent man and woman and the race of the indecent man and woman. For Frankel, this applies to all of society equally, guards and prisoners alike. For prisoners, the period following liberation is characterized first by the symptom of depersonalization. Prisoners who had been liberated could not immediately grasp the reality of their freedom. Then their bodies took over and they ate ravenously. Then they talked, and they talked, and they talked after many days of returning to life. Just liberated prisoners were still in need of spiritual care due to dangers posed by what Frankel characterizes as the sudden release of a huge amount of mental pressure. Some people with more primitive natures reacted by becoming instigators of brutality and injustice, which they justified by how they had been treated. What he's talking about here is that they, uh, they lashed out and they pretty much beat up the guards. Frankel, however, emphasizes his belief that doing wrong is never justified. Doing wrong is never justified. Other symptoms included bitterness and disillusionment. Prisoners found that people in their hometowns could not understand their pain and perhaps didn't even want to. Or many returned to find that their loved ones were dead. After all they had suffered, seemingly as much as was humanly possible there was still more suffering in store for these people. Still, Frankel writes, the crowning experience of it all for the homecoming man and woman is the wonderful feeling that after all he or she has suffered, there is nothing that he or she needs to fear anymore except their own God. Now that's powerful for him to say. Because when Frankel got out of his concentration camp, he found that his family was indeed dead. So he went from suffering to even more suffering. And despite that, he still maintained his mindset. Absolutely incredible. And that concludes part one, experiences in a concentration camp. Part two, logotherapy in a nutshell. In Logotherapy in a Nutshell, Frankel lays out the basic guiding principles of his theory of logotherapy, which he had already begun to develop before his arrest and imprisonment in the camps. Logos is Greek for meaning, and Frankel considers the search for meaning to be the primary motivation in an individual's life. Frankel emphasizes that questioning the meaning of one's life, or even despairing over an apparent lack of meaning, is not a symptom of mental illness but of a conflict of existence and a conflict that is not necessarily unhealthy. For Frankel, the suffering involved in such a conflict, suffering that arises from your existence, can actually be a kind of achievement. He regards the job of a logotherapist as that of helping a patient find the meaning 
the logos in his or her own life. Just as Frankel refuses to see the suffering that arises from the frustration of life as unreasonable, Frankel sees the kind of mental tension that arises from the gap between what one is today and what one should become in the future, not as something negative to be dispelled in favor of something more calm, like a calm equilibrium in your mind, but as a critical component of mental health. Frankel refers to the tension between a meaning to be fulfilled, goal to be achieved, or a task to be completed, and the person who must fulfill, achieve, or complete it as new dynamics. He calls it new dynamics. That's his terminology. And he suggests that his logotherapists encourage this kind of tension in their patients by reorienting them towards the potential meaning in their lives. So this kind of tension that you have right now in your life, let me just kind of dispel it for you. If you're thinking about where you want to be in the future and you're not there yet and you look at yourself and you're saying, this is who I am today and this is who I want to be in the future, he encourages that kind of tension because it's a constant search for meaning. It's a development of your human life and that's something that he believes is very good for mental health. And I agree with that. That's all about progress, making progress setting a goal and achieving it, that drive that we need to have, far too many of us don't have. And I completely agree with Frankel on this point. Frankel then turns to examining the reasons so many people in his time were plagued by a sense of the ultimate meaninglessness of their lives, a state of mind which he refers to as the existential vacuum, that ultimate meaninglessness that they feel. It's called the existential vacuum. While boredom is the main reason for the existential vacuum, depression, aggression, and addiction can all be attributed to it. People may also try to compensate by not having a will to find meaning through the will to power, especially in the form of the primitive will to money and the will to pleasure in the form of sex. The logotherapist's purpose is to help patients fill the vacuum with potential meaning. For Frankel, there is no overarching, one-size-fits-all meaning to life. Rather, there is an infinite potential meaning to be found in life, no matter the circumstances. The meaning any one individual finds in his or her own life is specific to that individual and can change from moment to moment. We are each of us, Frankel says, responsible for answering for our own lives. And this responsibility is the essence of what logotherapy is all about. The logotherapist aims to help patients recognize their own responsibility to life. Frankel believes that the meaning of life must be discovered in the world rather than through isolated contemplation. He terms this principle the self-transcendence of human existence and declares that the self-actualization other psychologists write about can only occur as a side effect of self-transcendence, which is forgetting the self by finding a meaning to fulfill, a cause to serve, or a person to encounter or love. Frankel says that people can discover the meaning in their lives in three different ways. The first through work, deeds, or achievements. The second, through experiencing something like nature, culture, art, beauty, or loving someone. 
And the third, through, if necessary, bearing suffering with dignity and courage. However, Frankl is careful to point out that suffering is not necessary for living a meaningful life. If suffering can be removed, it should be. But if suffering is unavoidable, there is an opportunity to find meaning in facing one's suffering in the right way. I just have to pause here for a second. The point here, it says, Frankl is careful to point out that suffering is not necessary for living a meaningful life. That might be the case, but maybe not suffering the way he sees it. But I believe in struggle, the fight. If you want something, you have to go get it. And there's a, a certain type of pleasure, a certain type of satisfaction that our DNA, our brains need. And I think we constantly need to put ourselves in that struggle and the fight against comfort. I've said this before on the show. I believe that comfort is a killer to so many of us. And while, yes, that's cliche, I think we need to really think about that. I believe that we need to seek struggle and seek lessons in that struggle. And maybe not suffering the way that Frankel sees it, because that, that was suffering. I see struggle as maybe trying to get up first thing in the morning and working out. All right, that's struggle, not suffering. So I just want to make sure that when I say that suffering, that doesn't mean go out and seek comfort because that's not what this is about. Do not go out and seek comfort. Go out and seek struggle and find lessons in that struggle. And once you get through that struggle, you learn lessons and you are able to find some achievement. That's the kind of satisfaction that you need. And you got to do it all again tomorrow because every single day you need to do that. Otherwise, you open your mind to the demons of depression, anxiety, fear, learned helplessness, guilt, laziness, apathy, and those things we have to fight off for the rest of our lives. But you can find great satisfaction fighting them off if you're doing something that you're very passionate about, something that resonates with you, and as Frankel says, something that gives your life meaning. All right, let's get back to it. Perhaps the central idea in logotherapy in a nutshell, and the one which Frankl spends the most time exploring in part one, experiences in a concentration camp, is that meaning can be found even when one is confronted with unavoidable suffering. It is true when it's said that finding meaning in one's suffering is the only thing that makes suffering bearable. For Frankl, the possibility of finding meaning even in suffering and up until the very end of his life, is evidence for the unconditional, infinite nature of life's meaning. Frankel remembers his most meaningful experience in the camps, grieving the loss of his manuscript and questioning if his life had any meaning anymore. He received the cast-off coat of an inmate who had died and found in its pockets a torn-out page containing the Shema Yisrael, the most important Hebrew prayer. Frankel saw this as a call to live the thoughts he had been writing down. Later, feeling that he would soon die in the camp, Frankel decided that his life was meaningful whether or not he survived, as the meaning of life was unconditional and did not depend on happenstance. Otherwise, there'd be no point to living at all. Central to Frankel's psychiatric practice is the belief that even patients afflicted by incurable mental illness retain their human dignity. He calls for a humanized psychiatry that sees patients and all people as more than their circumstances or conditions, that recognizes their inner freedom and essential human value. 
Frankel regards his experiences in the concentration camps as evidence that human behavior depends finally not on outer conditions, but on inner decisions. Part 3. The Postscript. The Case for a Tragic Optimism. In this postscript, added in 1984, based on a lecture given at the Third World Congress of Logotherapy in 1983, Frankel explores the question of how to remain optimistic about life in spite of its negative aspects, or what he calls the tragic triad, pain, guilt, and death. With his belief that human beings are capable of making something positive out of even the worst circumstances, Frankel suggests that each aspect of the tragic triad can be made meaningful. Pain and suffering can be turned into an accomplishment if the right attitude is taken towards them. Guilt can offer an opportunity for positive personal change, and the transitory nature of life, otherwise known as death, can inspire people to take responsible action. Frankel is very careful, however, to distinguish tragic optimism from the imperative to be happy that he sees as characterizing North American culture. According to Logotherapy, it is a reason to be happy that people ought to strive for, rather than happiness itself. Happiness occurs as a side effect to finding potential meaning in your life. While happiness is the outcome of a successful search for meaning, Life's despair, what Frank calls the existential vacuum, is the result when the search is unsuccessful. Frankel characterizes the existential vacuum as a mass phenomenon, a kind of collective syndrome. This sense of life's emptiness and meaninglessness afflicts not only patients receiving therapy or treatment for drug and alcohol addiction, but young people and students, the elderly, the unemployed, in people in industrialized societies across the world, just as it affected POWs during Vietnam War and prisoners in concentration camps during World War II. Frankel believes that the addiction, aggression, and depression he sees as symptoms of a neurotic disorder afflicting the young generation of his time can all be traced back to the existential vacuum that he argues that orienting people towards a sense of meaning in their lives is a necessary part of suicide prevention. Logotherapy's solution to the problem of existential despair, as Frankel emphasizes throughout man's search for meaning, finding and actualizing the potential meaning in each situation in one's life. He returns here to many of the same ideas that comprise logotherapy in a nutshell, in particular the three main methods by which people can find meaning. By creating or achieving something, work. By experiencing or encountering someone, love. And most importantly, by turning the tragedy of unavoidable pain and suffering, the first aspect of the tragic triad, into triumph. One example Frankel cites of this tragic optimism in the face of suffering is a study of American POWs who described their imprisonment in Vietnam as a personal growth experience. Another is the story of Jerry Long, a quadriplegic college student who wrote to Frankel, of how he looks at the suffering he has endured since his accident as responsible for the growth he has achieved and the meaning he has found in his life. 
In his discussion of the second aspect of the tragic triad, guilt, Frankel writes of the importance of holding people responsible for their behavior and encouraging them, like the prisoners he once addressed in San Quentin, to now use their inner freedom to change for the better. Lastly, Frankel discusses how to find meaning in the third aspect of the tragic triad, death, or more broadly, the transitory nature of life. Frankel sees this transitoriness as a reminder to make the most of each passing moment of our lives and to find true meaning in each situation while we have the chance. Because once we've done so, these personal achievements are safely stored in our brains where we can continue to draw on the power of these memories. These opportunities to find and fulfill meaning can be found no matter the circumstance of a person's life. To the logotherapist, Life is unconditionally meaningful, and human life is unconditionally valuable. This actually contrasts with the feeling of being useless that Frankel sees as leading many people to believe their lives are meaningless. He argues that the value of a person's life is not contingent upon his or her usefulness to society, and cautions against confusing perceived personal usefulness with innate human dignity. Frankel also criticizes the nihilism or belief that everything is meaningless that he sees as becoming widespread, not just in society at large, but even in psychoanalysis. He hopes those who take up the torch of logotherapy will be innovators rather than imitators of his own ideas, but also that they will remain committed to the tragic optimism, the belief in the unconditional meaningfulness of life in spite of everything that is the central tenant of his work. Woo-wee! There we go. All right. That is the conclusion of my reading for Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Now, again, I didn't read the book to you, but I condensed that book down as best as possible, especially for a memoir. It's really, really difficult. So I had to essentially take bits and pieces of the book and write it up myself so that it just made it a lot easier to uh, to understand the book. And if you want to dig deeper into them, please, by all means, go out there and pick it up. It's a fantastic read. It's an easy read. It's not that difficult. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a little bit of a different one, like I said, because I'm reading rather than just expressing myself as I so frequently do. But in any case, if you loved this episode, you know what to do. Please, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, give me a five-star rating. That would mean a whole hell of a lot to me. So thank you in advance for doing that. Don't forget to go online, connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Share this episode with people. I believe it's so important to start planting these seeds in people's minds to help them fight their own demons. Whatever they're going through, anxiety, depression, fear, learned helplessness, guilt, doesn't matter, extended periods of sadness. I don't care what people are facing. I want to share this content with people because it'll plant good seeds in their mind. And that's all we should be trying to do just continuing to plant good seeds in people's brains to help them build mental toughness and help them build resilience. That's our goal, everybody. And I think together, all of us can do that. We can, it sounds really corny. I don't want to say change the world, but we can change somebody's world. That's for sure. All right, my friends, that is a wrap for today. So again, thank you so much for your attention today. Truly means a lot to me. Thank you as always for your support. That means more to me than I think you know. 
But until next week, my friends, I will be back here with a brand new book, brand new Golden Nuggets, an interview with an author. And of course, every single week, you know what I'm trying to do here. Just trying to save you a little bit of time, bring you some information that can spark real change in your life and help you build mental toughness and resilience. A fantastic, productive, inspired week, everybody. I love you all. What do I do when I'm broken? When I'm broken, I relish it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use it. Because if I'm broken, then I just found my limitations. And until I know what my limitations are, how can I push them? How can I get better? But once, once I see it, once I feel it, once I see where I was broken, then I can attack that weakness. I can fill in that gap. I can reinforce that breach. If you break, it means it's time to fortify your will to make it stronger. There's all kinds of different ways to break. You can break physically, you can break mentally, you can break your heart, you can break your spirit, and none of those are fun, and all of those are gonna leave a mark. But the mark that they leave can be the mark of victory or can be the mark of defeat. Because every time you break, and in every way that you break, while it's a chance, it's definitely a chance for you to give up and for you to just to fall apart. But there's also opportunity. There's opportunity to get stronger and get smarter and get better. When you break, you have the opportunity to show the world, the whole world, what you are really made of. So, so if you break, if, if you break, the fight isn't over. In fact, if you break, the fight is just beginning. And as you crawl up and out of that dismal and wretched place covered and you're covered in blood and sweat and dirt and filth as you rise above what you were and as you take the form of 
of who you are supposed to be. You will see that in the very act of standing up, in the very act of fighting on, you will become and you will remain unbroken.